American United is the full-service credit union for our veterans. Learn more about their 1% cashback visa with low fixed rates as well as cash back on every purchase. It's one of the ways they can give back to their members. Learn more at amucu.org. I'm Scott Trout, CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. We help men deal with the life changes triggered by divorce, such as child custody and property division, among many others. But life changes also occur after divorce. These changes can make parts of your existing court order irrelevant or harder to follow. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, talk to us at Cordell & Cordell. We're a partner men can count on. Contact CordellCordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. Welcome to Ideation Collective. Today on the show, I've got Ismail Rickson. We've been around six years now. We've completed close to 400 deals, which is more than the majority of our competitors could combined um, and we have a very high quality intake when it comes to personnel um, which means that over the last three years we've averaged a 95% success ratio. This is another episode of our innovation and leadership series where we interview rocket scientists, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers and a wide variety of other high achievers. If you like what you hear we're also going to be releasing exclusive bonus materials like PDF checklists, reports and presentations but only for members of the collective. If you're interested in those, as of this recording, you can still join for free on the Ideation Collective website, which is iCollective.co slash free. Again, iCollective.co slash free. Also, before getting rolling, we want to invite you to consider helping the charity our founders started called Child Rescue. We work to combat child sex trafficking in the United States and abroad. One of our foreign projects we're working on right now is helping to build an aftercare orphanage in Cusco, Peru. To learn more about that, please come to the Child Rescue section on our website, iCollective.co slash Child Rescue. So with that out of the way, let's get to the interview. Ismail, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks very much. So um, we were catching up beforehand here. It's fun to have somebody else who, uh, who used to do m at Citigroup. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about um, your background before getting into what you're doing now? Yeah, sure. Thanks. Um, so I started my career, um, you know, five or six years ago in investment banking. Um, I worked at Morgan Stanley and then Citigroup. Um, and after a few years of that, I got d- disillusioned by the corporate lifestyle. Uh, pretty much around the same time, they stopped paying bonuses. Um, so I soon decided that um, I wanted to follow something I was a little bit more passionate about. And um, fortunately for myself, my best friend uh, at the time and, and still now, Thomas, um, you know, started a great company in FE International, um, which um, you know, very much focuses on inbe- investment banking services for micro cap M&A deals. So it was kind of a very good fit for me anyway. And he asked me to come and join him and uh, really be the integrator uh, in the company. And he's very much the visionary. And together, we've had four successful years um, since then, six in total. And uh, yeah, our company continues to grow. And it sounds like this last quarter, I mean, I know you guys published numbers. It sounds like this last quarter was good for you guys. Didn't you close like over 20 deals this quarter? Yeah, I have 21 deals this quarter, actually, um, which is around five or just over $5 million in sales. Um, yeah, we're pretty transparent about um, the deals we do and the volumes and, and metrics around that. And that's very much because we want um, kind of more participation in the industry. So it's kind of letting people know how the trajectory and trends are going. Um, and we account for a fair amount of the 
um, sub $5 million market. So kind of looking at our results over time is a pretty good indication uh, in terms of where the industry is going and how nicely it's growing. Um, but yeah, it's been, a, it's been a very, very good start to um, 2016 for us. Um, so we've kind of been focusing in the last couple of years definitely on getting the right people and the right team in place. And it's now already starting to come together, especially with our uh, new headquartered office in the US. Um, that's really helped us grow in the last six to nine months. Um, but yeah, everything is uh, everything is, is looking good and, and rosy for the future. So um, tell us a bit more about the, the specialty that you guys have gone after with the online market here. Yeah, definitely. So we, like I said, we provide investment banking um, services for micro cap M and A deals. It's um, you know we have a general policy internally of only hiring ex investment bankers, consultants, um, and entrepreneurs. So we have have been able to draw on a lot of our experiences working in some of the bigger M and A houses and bring that same level of. Um, you know, processes and, and systems and expertise to uh, what is sometimes, um, you know, an underserved market um, in the sub five million range. And because of our skill sets internally, we mainly focus on um, SaaS, so uh, services, software, uh, e-commerce and content businesses. Um, and that those are kind of some of the business models that um, you can get a little bit into the weeds in terms of the metrics and trajectories and forecasting, um, you know, business growth out. So that's what our team really likes, and, you know, really enjoys doing and has seen a lot of success in. Um, I think at the moment uh, we are the number one uh, investment banking service for SaaS businesses worldwide um, in the sub $5 million range. So that's been a particularly good focus uh, area for us. And we're continuing to, to build on that momentum. Sure. So let's say um, I'm an entrepreneur. I start a, you know, maybe it's like a marketing automation software or something. And um, I realize, yeah, this is probably not the kind of thing that's going to go public. And I put, I put my work in. We've got a couple of million dollars a year in recurring revenue. And I'm saying, you know, I, there's something else I really want to do, but it's not like I can take this thing public. How do I, how do I you know, how do I exit this? I come to you guys. What do you guys tell me? Yeah. Um, well, the first thing, you know, if, if we're kind of talking at that level, the first thing I would say is um, we would definitely kind of get in touch, meet up on the phone or at a conference or, or something and take a real deep look into your business and how you've got it to where it is today. Um, obviously, uh, you know, software service businesses are, are, are very popular at the moment and they, they should continue to be. So they command um, a higher multiple in the market versus some other business models. But it's important to see where that's come from, your type of involvement, and then obviously tweaking the business um, to really plan for an exit. Um, it's very rare that people come to us and we are able to list their business um, or put it in front of buyers straight away. We usually go through an exit planning process, which can take anywhere from a couple of months up to a couple of years. Um, Succession so planning would, and getting it all ready to be handed off. Is that the point? Yeah, 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 definitely. Like with SaaS businesses, especially, um, there's usually a fair amount of, um, you know, owner reliance or owner involvement, especially um, with companies that kind of are sub million dollar uh, EBIT. So it's important to um, just kind of figure out exactly how the business operates with the owners, how it could operate without the owners, and then start transitioning towards that ahead of time. Um, buyers typically aren't afraid of businesses that have um, 
a lot of owner reliance, provided they can see, like you say, there's a succession plan. Um, and if you can start to put a little bit of that in place, uh, you know, ahead of a sale, it gives, you know, an, a disproportionate amount of confidence to, you know, to the buying community that, you know, something started and they can simply carry it on. Um, but yeah, so definitely the first bit we would do is, is go through, uh, um, you know, audit the business where it is now. So in terms of financials, the actual profile of the business, um, where it's going, you know, the reliance and, of, you know, uh, a variety of other exit planning um, milestones we would go through. And then we'd set out, um, you know, what the next three, six, 12, 24 months could look like, depending on, you know, firstly, how quickly you'd want to sell the business um, and then kind of what your exit expectations are. Um, so, yeah, that's that's kind of really like the core of what we, we help people do. And I mean, every business um, is extremely different, and extremely unique in its own right. So that can be um, a, a small amount of work or, or, a, lot, or you know, a large amount of work, depending on the business owners um, as well as the business itself. Um, and and yeah, I mean, so once, you know, let's say we get a business through the exit planning. Um, we would then, you know, as a service, we put all of the, we, we kind of position the business in the, in the best possible light through, um, you know, our, our very detailed marketing materials. And, you know, that's an example of an area where we use our investment banking knowledge um, to really bring out the best in the business and get it presented to a, you know, uh, a serious buyer community in, in the right way where they'd want to pull the trigger and, and move forwards with an acquisition. Um, so there's a lot of um, knowledge and skill in-house that, that goes into that. Um, and then, you know, once we've kind of agreed on on all of the, all of those and the, the marketing um, method and route, you know, route to market, we will um, go out and do exactly that. We will, we will market the business to our collection of buyers that is about 50, we have about 15,000 vetted buyers at the moment. Um, and it's very much a case of, we very much stagger that process. So we have, we go through different rounds. So we don't just go out and list it on, you know, a third party listing site like biz by sell, like some other people in the industry might do. We kind of go through several rounds with our own buyer list. Um, and it's more common than not that a buyer on our initial core list of say one to 200 individuals will be, end up being one of the buyers um, that ends up acquiring the business. So it's, you know, we, we always say it's super important for our buyers to get in touch with, um, you know, our, our team of bankers to make sure that they're on our radar as much as, as we are on theirs. Um, so that when the right opportunity comes around, um, they're in that first one to 200 people. Cause that's where the majority of, of deals done, get done. Um, because yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, we're an advisory business. Um, so a lot of, you know, a lot of the value we add is not only in the processes, but in the, um, the relationships we hold as well. So that's why people, um, you know, they, they come to us for the exit planning advice and then they, they stay with us because of the, uh, you know, because of the actual relationships we hold, which you know, ultimately gets their, their business sold. Yeah. So I'm, I'm just flipping on your website, feinternational.com for anybody who's listening. We can, we'll have links to it on your page on ideation collective. And I'm flipping through your recent completions. Um, for a lot of people, especially folks who, who maybe don't have an M&A background, can you help set the expectation of what, what the multiples of, of this type of size business is going to go for? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, let's keep it to businesses with uh, less than a million dollars in EBIT. Um, I think that's probably a good cutoff point um, in terms of like the first set of valuation metrics. And I can give you another set. Um, so businesses below that will tend to sell for anywhere between two to 
four times, generally speaking. Um, that very much depends their on their profits, where, right? For people that feel two yeah, to four sorry, times yeah. the profits. Yeah, um, on, on a seller discretionary earning basis. So um, that kind of excludes owner draw, um, insignificant you know, it, other income expenses um, or other revenue expenses that are kind of one-off um, and not recurring to the business. So some of those components might include like, uh, you know, your accountancy fees, legal fees, one-off big projects that didn't add anything to, you know, the in income profile um, of the business. You know, it, it, it is very much a case-by-case -case basis. So, you know, that's, again, one of the things we work with people on. Um, so, yeah, so the... You know, so two to four times profit SD on an SDE basis um, is where most of these businesses end up getting sold for. That will very much depend on the business model itself. Yeah. So, for example, a content business might be at the lower end of that. Yeah, like they, I'm looking at this SaaS photography business, yearly revenue $800,000 a year, profits 330000 and uh, it says listed price six eighty. Yeah, um, I'm just finding that one on the out. Yeah, so yeah, in in that scenario, um, yeah, we're looking at what like just over a two times business, um, and that and yeah, that was very much um, on the lower end of it, um, mainly you know mainly because of the type of business model that was. Whereas you know, I, it, it, there are many different things you can look at. I mean, this business particularly, if I remember correctly, was about ten years old. Um, and there are a couple of different elements to it. Um, so while it was a, you know, a market leading service, there are quite a few moving parts. Um, and, you know, again, from memory, I think that the revenue profile itself had been quite stagnant. So there are like a few different pieces that you need really need to like factor in. It's not quite as simple as yeah. just going, like, oh, okay, it's a SaaS business. Therefore, it's going to be three and a half times multiple. Um, we've, you know, we recently completed uh, a 1.1 million deal that went, uh, above asking price for you know three and a half times, and it was only a year and a half old. But that business was growing 10% month on month uh, on a you know with a recurring model. So that was a very attractive business. Um, you know you might look you know at the previous example, go oh that was a SaaS business and that had 10 years of history. But it, you know trajectory is factored. Yeah, in. the internet moves very quickly as well. A SaaS a SaaS business that's 10 years old, yeah, that sounds great on paper, but the technology itself might not be as relevant, sure. um, especially in like photography or something like that where like it does change quite quickly. Um, so yeah, I mean yeah. it very much depends on, you know, how relevant is the product today, how much work's going to need to go into it, and then obviously uh how much uh you know how what the trajectory of the business is doing and and like we said earlier like how much of kind of the owner's time is involved in um, uh, in, in making that happen. Um, sure. You know, a, a team that a, a company that has a team of um, a team of staff that are coming with a business obviously is infinitely more attractable than a than a, a business that that is just reliant on a couple of people that might not be transitioning. So yes, it's very much. Uh, I mean, when we look through these businesses, there are kind of one to two hundred different things that you know could affect uh, you know could affect the the valuation, and then yeah. obviously all of the combinations of those that go together as well. So it's um, yeah, there, there are many many things that we we take into consideration. Sure. Uh, I'm just I'm flipping through these and I'm smiling because it, you you get such diversity. You know, like when I was at City back in the early 2000s, we're looking through specific SIC codes that are like businesses that fall into these certain parameters that we thought RPE groups that we were selling to would want, right? And yeah, exactly. I, and you would look you look at a code and go, oh, it has to be exactly the same as this because that's our comp, and that's that's a, sometimes that's as sophisticated as it got. Yeah. Uh, so. so 
I'm, I'm laughing here because my nine-year-old son would love this one, a Minecraft server review business. <laughs> this yeah, is awesome. Um, the guys are making 77000 a year in profit listed for three times, you know, 220000 about. Yeah, that one particularly. I remember that was very that was a while ago now, that one. Um, that was very popular just due to the sheer volume of traffic. Um, <laughs> and I think at the time... It was a right around the time Microsoft bought Minecraft. Um, okay. I think, think they're the ones that bought it, yeah. Um, so it was a very like hot time in terms of like the whole the, the Minecraft um, sites. So we, we got like an influx of them, um, which I guess isn't that bizarre looking back on it now. But um, but yeah, that just had a lot of traffic, and it was it was one of those businesses where the owner had almost stumbled across their success. Like the owner was like you know was a very was very good at running businesses um but i don't think even he thought it would get you know, <laughs> to the that it got to so yeah there are lots of things that weren't being done as efficiently as they could have been so i think that's what people loved about that business um and that one sold like that was sold very very quickly um at a pretty decent multiple that was you know, sure. close to three for that for that business so again it, you know it comes down to very much you know what we we try not to we try to stick to kind of our core competence when it comes to the business models themselves so sassy commerce content and content you know can include affiliate as well um but yeah the actual variety within that um is so diverse and that's why it's important for us to hire in terms of like the people that you know that make up our team that's why we're very focused on having you know investment bankers consultants and and kind of web entrepreneurs because you have to be able to look at a hundred different businesses and, and figure out what's going on with them very quickly um and ultimately a lot of the time it does come down to like the metrics of the business so if, if we have like great people that can figure out those metrics um you know everything else can can um you know, be be a secondary factor um and because you know like you say looking at a minecraft business versus a photography business versus you know some other type of software or uh e-commerce you know product it can be very very different and it's very tempting to get sucked into um you know this is a this business really interests me it sounds great oh let's give it a, a slightly higher multiple whereas we have a very disciplined uh model oriented approach to valuing businesses um sure so yeah so so give me the pitch if i'm i've got my business i'm making i don't know whether it's 50 grand a year or 250 grand a year whatever um and i'm i'm thinking about selling because i want to go surf in costa rica and um Somebody else tells me, oh, my buddy knows a business broker and he's only 1%. Uh, why would you pay those guys two and a half <laughs> or whatever? Tell me, oh, yeah. give me so. the pitch on on why having folks with your background who who have this as a core, like why that's going to work out better for me. Yeah, well, I'll I'll, um, I'll dispel that, that first, this bit first. Like we, we certainly charge more than one or 2% for our services. Sure, sure. Um, but yeah, um, yeah, I mean, the, the difference between us and, and other uh, kind of brokers, bankers out there um, is that we are the only company in the world, kind of sub $5 billion that do this uh, full-time as professionals. I mean, we have a team of people who sit uh, co-located in uh, in office spaces. So we have an office in London and we have an office in Boston as well. And Boston is our, is our main office. Um, and for us, this is very much, uh, you know, we don't do brokerage on the side. Uh, this is very much off our bread and butter and our full time. Um, we've been around for six years now. We've completed close to 400 deals, which is more than the majority of our competitors co combined. Um, and we have a very high quality 
quality intake when it comes to personnel, um, which means that over the last three years, we've averaged a 95% success ratio. Um, we also, um, you know, I'm not sure if I've mentioned this on a podcast before, but we, we also um, don't pay our, bro- our brokers and bankers on a commission only model. So, you know, we're not we always put the interest of the client best, um, whereas um, you know some of our competitors tend to work on a 50/50 commission model. And while that you know does sound great um, in terms of like running a business and overheads, and as a seller you might think, oh, they're really going to work for me. Um, when push comes to shove, and you know if they need, uh, if they have things going on in their lives, they might force you to take a deal that you might necessarily not want to take. Whereas you know we're a little bit more mature, we're a little bit bigger. Um, we have the precedence there and we, you know, we've had, I mean, for example, we're talking about kind of like the free economics, like, you know, the stuff that shows that real estate agents will sell your house quick because those few extra dollars aren't worth the time it takes to get you the extra money. Yeah. So I've actually got a really good example of that. Um, we sold a site recently, um, in, again, it was, it was a SaaS site and it was a large six, high six figure SaaS business. And at the time, um, it had taken, you know, three or four months of work to get down the line. And we were in the 11th hour, as in the the contracts were being signed, um, like, that afternoon. And kind of the, the seller was pretty – was happy with, like, the overall economics of the deal, um, but was not happy with, like, the actual buyer of the business um, and a few other pieces. And, and we, we were going with it, and the, the seller was continuing in good faith. And then um, the buyer, right at the end, before we were going to sign the contracts, made a very – off-the-cuff comment about what they plan to do with the business and, you know, the implications on a couple of, like, the service providers to the business. And, you know, the the seller of the business himself was a little bit concerned about this, especially as, you know, you, you might sell the business, but part of your reputation is still tied to the ongoing success of that business. Um, so, you know, the seller was, was a little bit put off and just came to us and said, look, I don't want to do this deal. Um, I know you've put a lot of work into it, et cetera. Um, but I'm afraid, but like, I really want... yeah, exactly. You know, he was like, I've got, there are staff going with it. The service providers, like I work with them on other stuff and, um, you know, it's, I just don't feel, you know, in good faith, I don't feel comfortable kind of moving forwards. What do you want to do? And like, I mean, our advice to him at the time was very much like we're behind you no matter what you want to do. And we ended up walking away from the deal the day it was meant to be signed. And we started the process again, found him another buyer within a couple of months, um, uh, closed the deal and you know he's now very very happy and I think like his feedback to us at the time was like I didn't really trust investment bankers when I went into this process but <laughs> that, that very moment like I knew you know I was working with the right people and, and that's very much the difference between us and like somebody else like we do have that you know uh, that very aggressive nature, and we will go out and get the best deal. But ultimately, we're not forced. Um, you know, we we're, we're not. We will always work in the best interest of the client. And having the biggest team, having the most precedent deals out there, having you know invested nearly a million dollars in our own proprietary systems to to help facilitate that, and and hiring you know only investment banks and consultants means that is now uh, something that's part of the day to day of our business um, versus you know a company that might have fewer staff, um, you know, may, might not even be based in, in North America uh, or the U.S. specifically and might, you know, have all of their people working on commission only. Um, it, it might sound very good, but, 
you know that doesn't always yield well, often it doesn't yield the best results um for you know ultimately for the client you need someone in your corner that is going to is out there to get the best results where their reputation is as tied to the success of your sale as, as yours is and it's not kind of all about the money effectively in terms of commissions and, and, and those pieces sure well and i can see how you know with you guys selling over 45 million dollars worth of these online businesses and this kind of stuff why that reputation helps. I I have a kind of a question of running your own business kind of perspective. You know, I look on your website and I see you guys are featured in Bloomberg Business Week and Entrepreneur and Fox News and Forbes and Reuters and Time and all these big names. Uh, With you as a CEO, is your thought, um, well, how much business do you feel like those brought in versus the value of the credibility of having been featured in them when a potential's client, when a potential client's coming to you, what for you? What's the? What do you wait more as? Yeah, it's a really good question, actually. Um, oddly, and this might be what people think, like those lead, the, all those you know features brought us in like next to nothing in terms of um, kind of leads or buyers, you know, at all really, like uh, buyers or sellers. Um, the majority of our business in terms of getting the right, or getting leads and getting the right buyers is very much um, on a, done on a networking basis. So it's a lot of going to conference, a lot of conferences, a lot of kind of keynote speeches and, and things like that. Um, it adds something in terms of like the credibility. Um, but we're, I mean, you know, we other than entrepreneur where our founder is um a weekly contributor and, and has his own column over there um the others were very much they just picked us up so um we didn't really put any effort into getting those but you know from a credibility standpoint like i guess that that speaks even, you know even uh, even more strongly about the service we put out there the fact that we were just picked up versus actively going after it um, so yeah, and like, but in, you know, in terms of like the quality of like the traffic that comes from there, it, it's very minimal in terms of you know the the typical client we look for. But you know, having said that, of the leads that we have, you know, that come in, I think over ninety nine percent of them we reject anyway. So we have a very strict criteria in terms of like both the buyers and the sellers that we'll work with. Um, so whether that affects how useful they've been, uh, I guess it, it does play into it a little bit. Um, but I think, like you say, it's more the credibility um, ang- angle there. Sure. You know, um, I feel like I wasted a lot of my 20s speculating as an investor. And uh, and so I became such a, like a, a nut for Warren Buffett material and reading all the books about him and going to his annual shareholder conference, stuff like this, right? And so... Yeah. I'm looking at, I'm like, do you ever, do you ever get tempted to just buy the businesses yourself? Like I'm looking at this one on here, a SaaS project management software, their yearly revenue is 59,000, but their yearly profit was 56,000. Yeah. And the list some of the prices, margins are, go ahead. yes. Yeah. Some of the margins are very impressive, uh, on these businesses. And the, the reason a lot of the time is because, um, you're able to scale in a totally different way online versus offline. I mean, some people might look at that and go, no, that's not possible. But I mean, I wrote a whole section in a Forbes book about exactly how people do that. Um, you know, you could own, you could own kind of three or four businesses in the online space, leveraging one set of core costs. Whereas, you know, you really might not be able to do that if you are running a retail store, for example. Um, so yeah, so like the margins are very impressive. We have, um, I mean, we do have our own portfolio of sites, um, and sometimes they're sites that wouldn't really be, really be a good fit for our um, our core service, but we find a strategic angle that is interesting to us. Um, but those are are usually like built around helping to educate the market rather than make profit. Um, I mean, 
uh, the sites that we run are, are profitable, which is which is a nice added bonus. But that really wasn't the the intention. Um, but yeah, I mean, we do sometimes get them in, and we're like, oh, <laughs> if you know, if I had a spare million dollars, that's definitely a business <laughs> I'm buying right now. But it it becomes a you know, it, it's a very slippery slope. You then start to, you know, want to buy more and more of them. And then at that stage, you're not really doing what you set out to do in the first place. Um, <laughs> sure. But yeah, but well, I think and like... And seeing these guys going for that high, you know, looked like they got that higher end more closer to the four times multiple. Yeah, well, I mean, we've we've certainly seen like more organized, um, more like organized fund activity this year um, in terms of like either people starting funds and getting people investing into them um, buying sites or people who are um, or people who are looking uh, you know to get together with their co-investors um, you know start a fund to go off and, and, and buy things um, and I think that's something we might explore next year in terms of doing ourselves um, just because we have such a great exposure to the SaaS um, SaaS space we're very ingrained in that so I think there's a lot of good opportunity around that and we've got a lot of um, traditional investors coming into the space now who don't who want the exposure, um, but they don't really want the headaches of running the business. So we've actually got like a full tech team in house. I mean, they built out our own proprietary CRM system, so um, they're like they're very good with technology and software. Um, we've got access to some great minds in terms of you know thought leaders and, and experts in the SaaS industry. So we will either help to formulate a SaaS fund. Um, that you know someone else will run or maybe we'll we'll run it you know with with the help of some external experts but i think you know that could be a possibly interesting angle because you're right some of these businesses you look at them and you just think you know the things we could do you know with this business and, and because we get very very deep into understanding the businesses before we sell them i mean we try to get our team to know you know the same amount as the owners of the business that we can do our jobs and, and sell them effectively um so a lot of the times we come up with some great growth opportunities that, you know, the, the sellers of the business haven't yeah. even seen. Um, you know, so, yeah. It's such an interesting concept. I am, um, I'm a big fan of this book, the trusted advisor by Robert Meister and Robert, or yeah, Robert green. I can't remember who it, I can't remember, there's three authors. We'll put a link to it on the page. Um, for being a big fan, you think I'd remember that, but I've, I've been through it maybe six or seven times in the last year or two. And I think that you brought up something that a lot of other service providers um, maybe could learn from this idea of learning their business as well as they know it. You think about anybody in the services industry, whether it's consultants or legal or other, other services industries, like how easy is it for a client to trust you when you've paid that price up front? Like when you legitimately understand the political, like not just surface business issues, but you understand the political wars and the, everything else that's going on when you want you know, when you advise them, how easy is it for them to take your advice when they can really trust that that you have that deep knowledge? Yeah, well, I mean, a lot of our kind of, a lot of the trust is built up you know, through the press and deals, and the majority of our leads come to us from you know either we've met them, had a, a good discussion at a conference, or, or they've come to us through um, kind of referrals or, or other word of mouth forms of marketing so there's always a certain level of implied trust that comes with it at the very outset um you know i think the fact that our business is quite large now I mean, we've got 15 employees or probably be 25 by the end of this year um 400 plus deals um and we're you know, market leader in um in SaaS and content businesses so i think that you know a lot of the, the trust is kind of um inherent at that stage um but yeah i mean uh, Dealing with dealing with businesses below five million dollars is usually not that many um, 
there aren't usually aren't that many team members so the, there aren't you know there isn't that much in terms of like the politics or anything like that i mean it's it's rare to have a business being sold with more than two or three owners and usually there's like one point person and we're very clear up front to establish that like who is the person in charge of this sale um who's the person we're going to be dealing with um and you know honing in on that one person very much means that we can understand the decision maker what they're thinking what their goals are out of it um which which certainly helps like throughout the process but uh, you know with our service like there might be sometimes we get businesses sold literally within 48 hours of listing them sometimes pre-market and sometimes it can take four to five months to sell you know, a large business so it's very much a case of staying in touch with the clients you know maybe meeting up with them um being very honest and transparent about the way the listing's going what's good what's bad and we're very active to share that feedback um we we try to do a we try to learn a lot about their business for this you know for the purpose um, that they then don't have to get on 20 calls with 20 different buyers every day and they can just carry on focusing on running their business, which is extremely important when you're selling a business. Like, I mean, for any business in online, offline or anywhere, like my number one piece of advice is continue to, to run your business as if you weren't selling it because you never know what's going to happen. So, you know, you don't really want to go into a, a five-month process and then mentally check out at the start of it. And then at the end, when you're going through due diligence, you have a buyer saying, oh, why have numbers dropped? And then you're sitting there going, oh, it's because I thought I was selling my business. So, you know, because that's just not an ideal you know, business scenario to be taking over. Um, but yeah, so I, I think... You know, we we're very honest with feedback. We we like to learn a lot about the business, and we like to give them a lot of exit planning advice up front as well. And I think that also helps to to build that trust from the outset. Because um, usually, like in terms of exit planning, it can be very it usually is very tailored to a specific business. But usually, there are like some core things you can do that would apply to every business model. So when sellers start to see you know some of those things improve uh, the performance of their business. Um, you know, the, the trust definitely starts to build. Um, but I, I think like we're, we're very credible in terms of like the way we, we carry out our business. And I think um, we're pretty transparent in the way we, uh, you know, report results, what's good, what's bad. Our predictions used to usually are, are on point. So at the start of every year, we'll, we'll set out a series of predictions and, and then every single quarter we'll go back and reflect on those. Um, and then obviously reflect at the end of the year as well sure. to make sure that, you know, to, to really like tell, you know, because we're, we're often the, um, you know, we're often not just a market participant. We're, we're the market leader in many, um, in many aspects. So, you know, we want to make sure that people understand what we what we think and then understand what we you know, have done to go out and, and, and achieve that. So, you know, for example, industry education, we said was going to be a really big piece you know, a couple of years ago. And then since then, we've produced over 500,000 words of content, like explaining to people about exit planning, what's important, what's not important, um, different business models. We produced three, uh, you know, excellent guides to buying online businesses. Uh, we have an exit planning one on the way. So we're very, we kind of state what we're going to do. And then we're very much dedicated to achieving that. And I think the fact that we are, we are a, we are a profitable and a for-profit company, um, but we invest a significant amount of our profits, um, back into like the industry, back into education and back into improving our own services, which, you know, and say our proprietary, I mean, our CRM, for example, we looked at what was out there and we just decided it wasn't meeting buyer and seller needs. So we went and spent a million dollars creating our own system that now means we have, you know, we can bring M&A style kind of security data rooms, uh, you know, and, and the such to, you know, 
deals that, quite frankly, if you went to an investment bank, they probably wouldn't be very interested. So you'd be very much dependent on... It's very on, kind of you to say it in those terms. Yeah, I mean, it's very much, you know, because and that's where we saw the gap, to be honest. That's where we, you know, six years ago when we started, that's where we saw the opportunity. We thought, you know, the, the advice doesn't necessarily change from, you know, a $100 million deal and a million dollar deal it's just that people who run these investment banks you know it's just not profitable enough for them i mean their overheads are so large they have you know teams with hundreds or thousands or tens of thousands of people there i think when you know at the time that i was at city before they did a lot of the downsizing they had 200,000 people across all business units so for them looking at a million dollar deal just isn't profitable um so, but you know, that doesn't mean the level of advice you necessarily give at a fifty million or a hundred million dollar, you know, level is any different. And, and in fact, like when when I was working in M and A at City, there were um, a number of like companies we were working with, you know, in the five ten million range, with the view that they would grow into a hundred million dollar company. So, you know, it just goes to show that you know the advice is you know often very similar across the entire range. Um, and it's just that we're out there providing that advice and making the investments to the people in the mid market, you know, and the micro market where we are, you know, can have access to that. Um, so hopefully it brings a little bit more equality and then hopefully it brings, you know, a much better service and, you know, safety and security to industry participants so that we have more offline people sure. coming in and helping to grow the industry. You know, um, I'd love to talk to you about what you feel like maybe some of the some of the rookie mistakes, you know, when people are selling their first company, some of the things that you see over and over. I mean, I remember when we would call, when I was calling business owners trying to let City sell their company, right? We had to talk to them about, hey, if you are getting bought by somebody big in corporate, you got to think like these people are, <laughs> these people are the Los Angeles Lakers or they are the whatever big basketball team. And this is your first, <laughs> this is your first game. Like, yeah, this the, is your first rodeo. Yeah. Right? The, <laughs> the tricks here, like the, when they tell you this number to get you locked in, locked in, and then over time they say, well, oh, but we didn't know this, so that number's got to come down. And, and then the, we didn't know this, and the number's got to come down. So this idea of going out and doing it yourself, like you're going up against the pros, this is your first time, and like you don't get a do-over, right? Yeah, so well, that's exactly it. Yeah. What, what, um, so I think we covered one already is people slowing down on the business because they thought they were going to sell it. Um, what yeah. what are some other what are some other like common rookie mistakes for business owners when they're considering exits? Yeah, I think um, I think you just touched on one of them there, which, which is the private versus public route. Um, and private being that I'm going to sell it myself. Um, whenever there's a scenario where you don't have competitive tension, you will often, you know, as the seller, you'll often be the one that ends up getting. Um, you know, the worst deal. And like you say, they'll come in at a certain level that sounds super attractive and then it's just endless, endless work um, and to, to get to a point where you're kind of signing contracts and, you know, you'll then probably get your lawyer involved who'll blow the whole deal up because they don't understand online you know, asset acquisitions um, as well as they do offline asset acquisitions. So, um, yeah, I think like we've had, we have a lot of people that come to us kind of say, look, I've got a buyer, they're strategic, et cetera. And like more often than not strategic, um, buyers either don't pan out, they're either fishing for information or, or they either just offer very low multiples because to them, the cost of replicating your business is usually far lower than the cost of actually acquiring the business itself, um, especially if you're kind of dealing in the sub $5 million range. Um, there's a lot you can do with $5 million to um, you know, replicate 
a competitor's business versus having to having to acquire it. Um, but yeah, so I think like that's one thing that people often think think, oh, we can do it ourselves. And there are certain people that have successfully done it themselves, um, but usually they have a pretty large network um, that they can tap into, and they're kind of you know internet famous in their own rights. Um, so yes, that's that's one thing. I think. Um, Cost cutting is another big one. Um, people, you know, we've written a lot of material around, you know, the fact that it's the profit typically is the driver um, in sub five million dollar businesses. Um, so a lot of people, you know, try to artificially, uh, you know, cut Engineer their costs. That, that, yeah, so they'll stop like they'll stop. Um, you know, pay-per-click advertising or something else, or they'll get rid of a few freelancers they decided they didn't need anymore, or stop the ongoing. Yeah, developments to websites and you know. And what should they do instead? Just focus on growing revenue. Yeah, continue to grow the business as long as the margins remain stable. Like the main thing is to look at continuing the the growth trajectory. Um, Because when we go in, we look at all this stuff anyway. We look at we'll look at all the ad backs and we'll go, okay, for example, this web development cost here is very much a one-off. It wasn't tied to this or this. Therefore, we could argue a case where that's going to be an ad back anyway. But the fact that you know you might have tried to strip costs for the last six months that could have a detrimental effect that you never knew was going to happen. So you know, again, you've always got to take the view of keep running the business as if I were going to, you know, keep owning the business as well. Um, because, you know, some, you know, a, a saving you make today might not necessarily make its way into the valuation, but certainly six months down the line when you're signing, con- or three months down the line when you're signing contracts and going through, you know, buyer due diligence and they notice a, a slight drop off in the, you know, customer, acqu- you know, the rate of you know, customer acquisitions or, you know, the rate of just general gross and, and net numbers, that's going to start, creating some situations that are usually uncomfortable for a seller. Um, so certainly like trim the fat where appropriate, but don't start cutting core units to the business. And the ones we see time and time again is people cutting advertising, um, thinking that that's going to make a huge difference. But usually we'll probably smooth that out anyway, even if you cut it off, we'll, we'll, we'll identify that as an area of concern and, and usually add that cost back in. So it's very much a case of just be honest and, and, uh, drive and continue to drive the business if you you know as if you're going to own it for the next 10 years um and then yeah i think like in terms of especially like software like SaaS businesses um like getting the right people in place often that doesn't have to mean um you know having people sitting in an office but certainly if you're an owner of a business getting towards that million dollar ebit number um at that level you're going to start attracting interest from like small private equity firms um, and funds, and they, you know, they will pay slightly higher multiples for a business doing million dollars plus in EBIT. Yeah, but we, in exchange, we actually talk about that—the new interest in the asset class and what what you see in the future there. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Well, I mean, that asset class is certainly picking up. Um, but but those, those people certainly, or those funds, they they certainly want to see a business that um, they can buy and run as a going concern. They're not interested in buying it then having to replace the CEO. Etc. Like they kind of want to see that in place already, um, and I think that's going to become more important for for businesses doing you know million dollars plus an EBIT. I think um, you know having a business that looks like an actual business, um, and as more you know, we're starting to see, you know we said at the start we we kind of noticed this trend at the start, late 2015, and we've definitely seen it early 2016. Like people are these funds are becoming more organised, better funded. They're finding more offline people to invest in them, um, more private equity firms are now getting involved, um, especially as the multiples on, uh, 
you know, especially as the multiples have, have definitely started to firm up over the last few years, they're slightly more predictable now. Um, so we're certainly seeing a lot more interest in that. And for those type of businesses, I mean, they'll happily spend five, five plus million dollars on an acquisition. But for that, you know, they'll pay you a five times multiple, but they they definitely want to be seeing like a team in place, etc. So for a lot of people, it's definitely the advice is always like, if you think you're going to get to that level, um, then certainly as part of your exit planning, start to think a couple of years ahead, like, what do I need to do to get the right people in place so that I'm not necessarily the face and the operations of the business? Maybe I'm just the face or maybe I'm just the operations, but um, certainly making a more robust team structure around um, you know, the business itself is, is, is always advisable. No, it makes so much sense though, right? When you think about the value of time, especially for a financial investor like that, you think about all the, um, you know, everything you, when Warren Buffett puts his advertisements in the Wall Street Journal saying we're looking for businesses of this size, but he puts in there like, we need management in place. We, can, we cannot supply management, right? Yeah. He's I mean, like, if you're spending 10 million bucks on a business, you're not going to want to go in and run that yourself. You're probably buying... 10 businesses all at $10 million and you've got better things to be doing than running, you know, going in and, and managing the staff on one of them. So, you know, at that level, they definitely do want to see management teams in place because it's a going concern. They, they want to, they want the returns on it. They don't, you know, they, they have different ways of growing these businesses. Like they'll often buy three or four businesses that are very similar and put them together. And that's the expertise they add. The expertise isn't making sure you have the right marketing person within a certain division of a certain you know company that they bought. Um, I'm sure they, they can do that, but their time is better spent thinking, um, you know, uh, holistically across their entire portfolio. Um, so that's why they will pay slightly higher multiples um, provided that is in place. And to be honest, like they, you know, these funds and, private equity firms probably wouldn't even be interested if like you say Warren Buffett says as a criteria up front we must there must be a management team in place and I'm sure if you said to him I had the best business in the world and it doesn't have a management team he would go one you know as a disciplined investor he would go no thank you like this is our model and we stick to it yeah I mean it actually I feel like it's actually a good exercise anyways when you think about um you know everybody's so excited for entrepreneurship you know my one friend says um, yeah, it's so great. You get to pick which 16 hours a day you work, you know, and, um, but there is definitely the issue of, you know, we don't necessarily, we all get, we all get all this information about how to sell better, how to market better. Um, but not necessarily how to build the kind of system that I buy my time back with. And yeah, you think about the value to an entrepreneur, if they can intentionally design the kind of system where they're not required to be there for the thing to create those net profit numbers i mean they might even enjoy just keeping the thing right like your options your options don't change just because you've built a, a like you've made it more sellable and more pleasurable to keep if you wanted it yeah exactly and you can go off and, and do other reinvest your profits into your next project um which is what a lot of successful people do i mean i think like the book the e-myth like definitely touches on this is you know you, you don't want to be buying a job effectively. Uh, and, like, and some people do. Some people want to come out of their corporate lives and run an online business. They're very happy to do that. But a million dollars plus, like, that isn't often the case. Um, so, yeah, I think, I mean, a, with a lot of the exit planning stuff, like a lot of small, simple things like that, um, you know, 
it can often, you know, they, you know, one percent improvement in a few different places can add up to quite a big improvement overall. Um, so that certainly is something that we work with people quite intensely on. And you know, going back to your point about trust earlier, that certainly like helps build the trust between us and and sellers and buyers as well. I mean, we, you know, we stay around giving kind of advice. Um, you know, post-acquisition as well, where it, where it's needed. But yeah, I certainly think that, I mean, time is the one thing you can't buy more of. Um, someone said it the other day, actually said to me, they're like, the, the myth is, you know, time is money. And that's not it at all. Like, uh, you know, time is a, is, a un, is a unit you effectively can't buy back. Even if you had all the money in the world, you cannot buy an additional unit of time. So it's definitely like figuring out how to most effectively use that time. And often that is, you know, investing your assets in, into a, an asset class or into a, a type of business that can run itself with your strategic input rather than run itself with your, you know, you know, having to be there day, day to day. Um, you know, if you work 16 hours a day, you know, I think the more often, the more successful you get, the more hours you end up working, um, ironically, but it's, um, you know, certainly that 16 hours could be used on other things, more high level things, um, rather than being there, you know, doing the books, uh, making sure the code is up to scratch, you know, and working on every single opportunity yourself. Um, you know, and it's often like very liberating as well. Um, a lot of people often get into, you know, web acquisitions to get away from that corporate, um, you know, I work my nine to five, et cetera. And then they like to throw themselves into it um, and, and work all the hours that, that they can work. Um, but, you know, everyone's, everyone's slightly different. But I think if you're going to be getting involved with a private equity or uh, fund, then I certainly think that they are extremely disciplined in the way they do business. And I, I don't think with all the will in the world, I don't think you'll ever convince them to move away from their model. Um, and if you can convince them, then they're probably not a very disciplined investor in the first place and you might have problems with them down the line. Um, so, you know, I'm so, yeah. I'm so glad you brought up the book, The E-Myth. I feel like I feel like especially folks who, you know, worked at the – like I'm thinking about my other coworkers from Citigroup, whatever, right? I think that they're in – that, in that crowd, there could be very much a looking down their nose on that book's not sophisticated enough. That's for small businesses only, right? But I feel like there's a really critical message that applies whether you're running an investment fund with tens of millions or hundreds of millions of dollars or a small business of this level of thought of like – like, have you thought through your business so well that you could describe it well enough for someone else to run it for you? Like, there's a, there's like a, a very thorough, I don't, I don't know how to explain like what I feel like this value, but that, that book, like it, it's like mentally rigorous if you really applied it and you got past the, oh, this is maybe only for smaller businesses, um, that ben I feel like benefits <laughs> all sorts of organizations. I've done consulting at these, uh, you know, Fortune 100 company with, uh, you know, tens of billions of dollars of, of revenue. And I'm sitting in this room with like 22 marketing people. And in three and a half hours, I haven't heard people talk about making money once, you know? Yeah. That's <laughs> <And> <laughs> anyways, go on. It's my, that's my no, soapbox. I, mean, I, I completely agree with you. Like, I love that book. A lot, I mean, yeah, it's um, a, a lot of the books. I mean, I read a fair bit, not as much as I probably should do. And certainly not as much as, um, our founder Thomas um, does, but a lot of the books that re resonate with me personally, the most are books that turn a situation into a story because, you know, a long day and you're, you're kind of getting home at like nine, 10 o'clock in the evening. And then you need to do a couple of hours of reading. Like the last thing you want to be doing is diving into something super technical. Um, so there are some books that, 
have been genuinely eye-opening for me, but have always been described in like, I think the only one that hasn't been described in a story was um, predictable revenue. Oh, um, the guy I think from that... salesforce.com? Who, yeah, who wrote that? yeah, exactly. Um, uh, that was Aaron Ross and Marilou Tyler yeah, yeah. wrote that. That's a great book. And that isn't like, that kind of talks about a story, but not not so much. It's a little bit more detailed. Um, and ironically, an investment bank gave that to me, um, saying I should probably read it. But the, the, one, <laughs> yeah, the ones that are really good are, the two I found really useful are Built to Sell uh, by John Warrillow. Um, and that's a very short, like 200 page read. And it's very much like Bob has a company Bob has this problem and talks through like selling his business for like $5 million. And, and at the time when I read it, like three years ago, I was like, that is the most eye-opening thing I've ever read. Um, and it was so like dumbed down and simple. Um, and then more recently I've read um, The Goal. Um, Elliot Goldrat. Yeah. And that's what, like 20 years old, 30 years old, at that least, book. Yeah. Yeah. But the way that they managed to synthesize like, processes and systems into a, like a story you actually want to listen to is just brilliant and i think that's why that book's been around for so long and still referenced so widely and that's like i i put a lot of our success down to reading that book um in terms of like the way we look at systems and uh bottlenecks and everything else and yeah i mean i you know that book has done wonders for our, for our business certainly and just the way we kind of all think around you know the future and, and how we're going to achieve it so i i rec- definitely recommend that book to anybody Okay, well, we'll put links to all those on your page on Ideation Collective. Um, I just uh, I just added Built to Sell to my Audible wish list right now. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's funny because so many of the more complicated things, they seem like intellectually stimulating, but then people don't end up applying them. So I'm interested because I don't know that book at all, but I'm interested that you describe it as simple because so many times those are the things that are the most effective. Um, yeah, it was. It was. It's probably a story that a lot of people can resonate with as well, because it's, it's just the story of a guy who runs a an advertising agency, effectively, and he's doing too many things, which is very common for business owners. You know, below five million dollars, like they often do. They often have too many services and master none of them. Um, and also, it was very much like built around him being the expert in the business. So, you know, it's a very common scenario that kind of the small business owner in America probably. Uh, is in um so it was very it was, it was kind of at the time you know i was probably a little bit well, I was probably very guilty of being like that and you know myself and thomas and we kind of read it and thought you know what we might not have necessarily learned the techniques in this book but it's opened our eyes in terms of where we are now and where we need to get to if we're going to you know become a, a business that has its own you know has value beyond us as, as the owners of the business um so it, it certainly didn't teach us the the how to do it but it taught us the why it's important to do it um and that's what that book kind of provides in a very enjoyable light read you know that's interesting because there is so much material out there of like you need to turn yourself into celebrity you need to turn yourself into a brand the value you can offer is being famous right and in my opinion it gets really overdone this self-focus kind of stuff because yeah. when you look at when you look at these you know Dairy Queen doesn't need Warren Buffett to own it to keep making its money, right? Uh, well, yeah, that's, that's exactly it. And I mean, people become celebrities because of you know the success of their businesses. You don't have to be a success before your business is a success. Um, you know, that's the that's pop culture celebrity or kind of internet stardom, which is you know great today. But I mean, there is such a thing of of having your 15 minutes of fame online as well. And, you know, to turn into like 
the real Neil Patels of the world, you need to have like something really substantial behind it and a really successful business. Um, so I think focus on your business first and then worry about becoming a celebrity second. <laughs> yeah. Although I will say, I feel like creating that substantive background of actually paying the price of doing the really hard things to systemize and the, the humility things of building a team instead of becoming the star, right? You wonder if that doesn't like fill that gap, that insecurity inside of someone that is driving them to be the celebrity and they end up not needing it in the end, even if they get it. Yeah, it's probably, it's probably a very fair point. Um, I mean, certainly with us, we are, you know, publicly facing we're not the celebrities of our of our business um you know if we if we got it to a hundred million dollar valuation potentially we we would be um but then even then probably no one's going to care um probably need to get to a couple of billion before you start to get you know warren buffett status but um yeah i think like running a team is very challenging but with that it can be very like rewarding personally as well um so especially as like as now we've we've hit that critical mass where we're like 15 people and we're at that stage where you can start to get a lot more done in terms of like everybody's adding more than just a hundred percent of their value uh, to, to the business. So, you know, you can launch projects a lot more quickly. You can, you know, you can see traction. Whereas when it was just two of us, you know, start, well, Thomas and originally then me joining and kind of refocusing the business, um, to what it is now you know we were just two of us sitting in a room and that was uh it's very difficult to get things done at that stage and yes you're living a, you know the entrepreneurial lifestyle and you can come and go as you please but you know as you know to get anything off the ground you will be doing those 16 18 hours a day anyway so you're you are still chained to your desk you just work for yourself effectively but having a team uh now it, it kind of brings back that accountability it brings back the i actually work for a purpose beyond you know just being profitable and making money like you know you you have to come in every day you have to work with your team they're there and they rely on you to a certain extent and you rely on them to an even greater extent so um but, and yeah, I, certainly i feel like you brought up something though that is critical that doesn't maybe get talked about as much especially for people as they're starting their business because whether you're building the kind of business that is going to require you to keep trading your hours for dollars long term or you're building the kind of business that will eventually have a system that doesn't need you, at the beginning, they don't look that different, right? At the beginning, you are putting in those long hours or you're doing whatever it takes, right? But if you don't intentionally design a system that could eventually work without you, you're not going to get it by accident, you know? Yeah, you're, you're completely right. I think there's the... I think there's like a uh, there's a slight uh, you know stare effect there. You kind of put in the hours, you make a bit of money, you can then spend that money on a system. You can then you spend less hours doing the same activity, make a bit more. But I think like you know, and it just keeps on going up. But I think you just replace whatever the hours are. You just that you've saved by bringing a system in. You just end up spending them elsewhere, and that's how your company really grows. At the end of the day, it's it's you know, there are, you know, one to 200 things I imagine in most companies that need doing at any one time. So, you know, it's just getting yourself in front of the, those particular activities, fixing them, fixing them once and then moving on. Uh, I think that's, that's what we try to do. We try to, we identify a problem or an area that could be improved, fix it once and then move on to the next thing, you know, and, and, and sometimes that fix might take a couple of months. Sometimes it might take a couple of days, but you do whatever is necessary to fix it. And then you move on. So you don't have to come back to it again. Um, but entrepreneurs, like, I mean, 
I don't necessarily class myself as an entrepreneur. Um, I guess by default, I am. Thomas is very much the entrepreneur in our business. He is the founder. He is the visionary. I'm the implementer. So I come in and I get things done. I take the vision and I make you know make them a reality. Um, so, uh, but you know, I think even for me, like you have that bug inside of you, and you just want to work really hard and you want to do as many hours as you can because you know that a unit of your effort or a unit of time equals like a certain output and whatever that output is for some people it's money for some people it's a diff, you know happiness or, or something different but there's always like you know something you're working towards and i think people who are truly passionate about running their businesses will you know nobody truly retires if you're an entrepreneur so you'll just find something else to spend your time on uh usually your be- next business venture i mean it, for us it's very rare to see a seller come along and then they go oh i'm i'm selling up at the age of 40 for a couple of million dollars so that i can sit on a beach for the next 40 years of my life they're always going off and doing something else and i think that's just part and parcel of being an entrepreneur sure well um with your ceo background and growing what you've done one of the things we always like to ask guests is that the charity with that we started child rescue that combats child sex trafficking we run prevention campaigns aftercare programs law enforcement assistance programs um, if you were going to give us advice on, you know, how do you how do you get more people involved in the issue of protecting kids from that kind of abuse? Do you have any advice that uh, comes to mind right off the cuff? Uh, in terms of marketing, well, how to get the message spread to more yeah, people? Yeah, how to get more people involved, how to get aftercare orphanages funded, anything. Uh, well, it's, it's exactly what you're, you're doing now, bringing it up, making uh, making people aware about it. I think, like, marketing is marketing no matter what your, you know, the end goal of it is. So I think... Getting on, you know, nothing is a substitute for, for hard work. So it's just getting in, making sure you're you're bringing it up, going to the right events, speaking to the right influence. And I guess the influence is the, is the big thing. Like if you speak, if you get people, uh, you know, with with large networks to speak about this as well. And you know, especially like you know, charity type organisations, I think a lot of people. Um, a lot of people have, you know, the best intention in the world when it comes to, you know, donating and, you know, either their time or money. Um, that always doesn't always happen. People often say they'll do something and, and they won't. But one thing that people always do do is they always they're, people are pretty good at spreading the word. So, you know, being very aggressive, uh, you know, going after your influencers is definitely, you know, the key people out there who are active in philanthropy and, and uh, you know, in all of its forms. Um, I think that's certainly something um, you should go after. So just make a list of like the top 10 key influencers you want to go after, be that, you know, huge celebrity, be that your, you know, Warren Buffett's or Mark Cuban's or whoever that, you know, Richard Branson's who, you know, often do stuff off, you know, who are very active themselves, you know, f- write down a list of the top 10 people you want to go after and devise a strategy, uh, you know, to, to get it, get it in front of them. I think that's the best thing you can do. And if they, if, you know, it falls on deaf ears, then you write your next top 10 list and go after them. And eventually you'll perfect the way to reach those people. And then you can go back to your original 10 list and, and try them again. Um, but I think like, having those top 10 people identified um, and, you know, keeping in mind that everybody wants to help and everybody, you know, the sky's the limit when it comes to, to who uh, you can reach. There's no barrier to entry when it comes to wanting to help out humanity. So I think that's certainly the, the, the way I would go about approaching it. That's great. You know, you talked about events earlier. You're talking about conferences. I'm a big believer in the, um, you know, we had Amy Stellhorn, the founder of a big monocle agency on, and she kind of got me into this idea of go to the watering holes 
where your clients are already. Like if you're, you know, safari kind of thing, the watering holes is where you're going to see the animals. So I'm a big fan of conferences. I feel like there's, it's great to generate leads online, but there's something that happens face to face that that's different. Um, what, what conferences do you feel like are high value? Like, what do you find yourself going to? Um, so the next, I mean, the next set of conferences I think we have scheduled are, um, we, well, we just come back from microconf. Um, we've got another microconf, which is a, a SAS conference, um, run by Rob Wallings. That's, that's a very good conference if you're interested in, uh, if you have a SaaS business or if you're interested in, in SaaS businesses. Um, there are a few others like uh, Bacon Beers, um, Business of Software, um, good conference as well. Um, and then in terms of like uh, more like affiliate, you know, Amazon, FBA, e-commerce businesses, Freedom Fast Lane in Austin is always uh, a very good event to attend. Um, but we publish, I mean, we publish the conferences we attend on our, on our website. So, you know, we often, like you say, yeah, going to the watering hole is definitely the best uh, best strategy. I think, we, I think we're at 12 or 13 this year and half of those we'll be speaking at. Um, and they're all over the world. I think one of them, you know, we're, go, we're going as far as Thailand, I think, this year. Um, for one of the conferences um, so yeah we it's definitely part of our strategy um, and it helps it definitely helps build that trust and it helps educate people as well because um, you, you know often you can't force somebody to read a blog post or an ebook but you know have a five minute chat with them they'll, they'll soon understand whatever the messages you're trying to get across to them and if you can get up on stage even better because then you have the the, the attention of the whole room so i think conferences is something that's been very very successful for us um and we'll, we'll continue to do that and probably look to put on our own conferences uh you know over the over the next couple of years um especially now that we have such a large base in the u.s i think that that definitely makes sense sure you know, um, I know you guys are, are going to be coming out with a podcast soon. You'll have to send us the update when that's out so everyone can check it out. But um, I'm interested in that. You know, I started a podcast largely because I, I just thought about me and my friends that were kind of like the addicted business learners. And we're we're guys that are constantly consuming audiobooks. And then kind of like in the margin when I ran out of audiobooks, I was always listening to podcasts. And um, I'm interested in your thought process of, of why you guys are going to spend the time to you know, cause it's a bit of a hassle sometimes and it's definitely some work. What, what is it about podcasts that you guys have decided to invest in it? Yeah. Um, I just think it's such a good way to reach, um, an audience. And I think it's, it's one of those things that people tend to binge listen to. So, you know, you'll, you'll listen to one episode and then you find up, you know, find that you'll end up listening to, to 10 or 20 quite, quite quickly. So for us, that's a very good way of like getting the message across to people. Um, and also like, it's going to provide, you know, the, the way we're, you know, we'll go about it. It's not going to be us. It's going to be very much, you know, the way you run this, you know, successful podcast. It's going to be getting, you know, influencers and people on that can give some real advice. And um, I think that the podcast is probably the best way to go about providing that platform to these people and, you know, giving exposure to their minds and their thought processes for people that might never get to meet a Rob Walling or a Patrick McKenzie or, or somebody like that, um, you know, who's, who's big in the SaaS space, for example. Um, you know, you, you might go and read their, their blog post, but you can get a lot more just by listening to, you know, somebody's voice and the way that, you know, they describe, they, they react to questions or kind of elaborate um, on you know, on their thinking patterns. And I think the podcast is very good at bringing that thought process out of people. Whereas, you know, writing a blog post, for example, can be very scripted a lot of the time. There's a format that you follow. Um, and there's no like, 
there's no ad lib there's no like just letting you know things go and, and speaking freely um because you're always worried about keyword re- you know getting the right keywords in there optimizing it for for this that or the other <laughs> and often that becomes you yeah. know that becomes the, the importance whereas a podcast is just raw unscripted here's what we're going to talk lucy we're going to talk about let's have an hour discussion about it and then some people like the type of stuff you get on that might be infinitely more useful than, you know, another podcast, an, an, another blog post, which is basically the same as all the others. Like, oh, give us your top 10 tips for this. Um, you know, probably top 10 tips they've written everywhere else. Whereas, you know, for, for me, I can't, I can't even remember what I said on my last podcast. So you're probably getting, you know, brand new, unique content right here that <laughs> I, you know, that I, I didn't say last time. And I think that's the brilliant thing about, you know, podcasting. Um, you just get people's honest opinions. And, and it also it reaches the offline. A lot of offline people like to listen to podcasts. Certainly, um, I mean, just in the community I live in, um, I know, you know, there's a lot of, uh, bankers and um, and slightly older people to myself that that won't necessarily go on a website to read something, but they'll certainly go on iTunes and download their you know new episodes of their favorite podcast. So I think it's um, it's just a, another way of reaching your your target audience. And I think that they can't be looked at on like a mutually exclusive basis. I think that you know that you you can do both. You can do you know podcasts. You can do guest posts. You can do uh, you know, your own blog or, or whatever else. Um, and you know, they're just going to reach a different, slightly different, you know, audience, um, to you know, the one you might already have. Well, uh, plus people, way fewer people know that I can't spell this way, right? Yeah, that's true. That's, that is very true. That's, um, I'm t- also terrible at spelling. So, <laughs> so all, um, all my communications from now on will go through podcasts. Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah. Well, listen, uh, I think you guys have some great stuff. We, we definitely want to link to some of the, the, the tools you guys have put together, just um, the material about selling a website or buying a website, you know, these kind of things. And, uh, you know, we'd love to have you stay in contact with the community and, and uh, you know, bring that unique advice. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'd love to follow up in a year and tell you what's changed. So uh, that's um, certainly something that I'd, I'd, I'd love to come back and do. Okay, put it in your calendar. Let's do it. okay brilliant yeah thanks for having me okay thanks for making time thank you and that's the show thanks for listening today again if you're interested in the bonus materials that we will be producing make sure to come to our website and join the ideation collective while it's still free the website icollective.co slash free again icollective.co slash free and as always if you want to learn more about getting involved in helping the team rescue kids from traffickers please visit icollective.co slash child rescue. Hi, welcome to the Subway ad for two ninety nine subs. How would you like it? Uh, I'll take Drill Sergeant, please. You got it. All right, now listen up. I want each and every one of you to drop and give me a six-inch meatball marinara. Cold cut combo. Veggie delight. Or black forest ham on your choice of bread with any veggies you want for just two ninety nine each. Subway! Make it what you want at participating restaurants. Additional charge for extras plus applicable tax. No additional discounts or coupons may be applied.